The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to Business is Boring. You might have seen news of a new offering for first home buyers from a company called Era, who offer higher savings interest rates to allow people earning well but locked out of the housing market to save a deposit faster and with future offerings get into a house with a much lower deposit. It's a new financial institution from Derek Handley, the entrepreneur who founded and grew one of the world's first mobile-focused technology creative companies, the Hyperfactory, to an exit to a listed company and then worked with Sir Richard Branson on the B-Team a leadership initiative to help advance environmental and social change through business. Working across New Zealand and the States, Derek has been involved in venture studios, climate and frontier VC, and the academic world, with positions at AUT, Wharton, and study at Harvard. And now he's starting a new kind of non-bank bank. To talk the journey and what that means, Derek Handley joins us now. Tenakwe, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Hey, so talk, t- take us back to that first big success with uh, the Hyperfactory. Um, one of the first companies to really see the potential of mobile and creativity and in um, the world of communications. How was that journey? How did you end up starting that? Well, it's going back quite a way, Simon. <laughs> um, you're really going back in time. But I think something that's a pattern of what I have done or learned to do is try to look at what's going to change in the future. What are the systems that will change? How will culture change? And what do you need to build to help shape it? And so when I was a kid at university and I graduated, I knew I wanted to start a company. And so immediately after that, I spent several months like mapping out what will change in the next 10 years and where would be a good place to almost surf a wave so that you can make a lot of mistakes while trying to learn how to build a company. And one of the spaces I looked at was the transition from the internet to mobile. And at this time, bear in mind, it was basically text message was what we had. But I thought there was enough room to figure out that, you know, there's going to be a lot of need to help build technology to transition the world from the web to mobile. And that's essentially what we set out to do. And so what do you actually do this? You go, I see there's a big change coming and... I'm going to try and get a company going that gets in the middle of it. And then I'm just going to work it out. Exactly. Especially <laughs> if you're just a graduate, right? Yeah. So I always thought, and I do think anyone who's listening, the younger you are, the bigger the risks you can take and the more creative you can be because um, we well, can either choose to be judged by what people expect of you, which is to go get a job and a big firm and get promotions and all that stuff. Or you can choose to take a totally different path, in which case people are too confused to judge you because they don't know what you're doing. And for me, it was like, I'm just going to go and build things and figure it out. And yeah, exactly. I knew nothing about software. I knew nothing about mobile. I knew nothing about technology. And I had to learn everything. 
and figure out where is the gap to build something that's meaningful. The only thing I knew and was convinced of was the world would go from the internet to mobile and the mobile device would become the future like remote control to everyone's lives. And at the time in 2000, it's very hard for people to see that, especially as this was just after the internet bubble had burst where people were full of doubts about what the internet was gonna be in the first place. But to me, that was also a perfect time to start something in the face of like a lot of critic, uh, critical um, commentary around what is the internet to start something saying, actually, I'm going to think about the next internet, which is a mobile internet. Yeah. And you built out a company that had offices around the world, like operations in places like Hong Kong and, um, you know, development happening out of, out of India. Is that right? And yeah. worked with like the biggest brands and won all of the kind of, you know, the, 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 the can lions and the, yeah. the set and the other. Um, how do you go about going from we're just going to work it out to having that kind of success? Honestly, I don't know. I think that's the part that's maybe a bit more innate to me, which is what's the critical path? And I'll, I can figure it out. I'll figure it out and just go through all the different options and try and choose the ones that make sense. Um, but one of the ambitions back then also was to say, can some kids in the bottom of Anzac Avenue build a global startup? And again, going back in those days, there was no infrastructure. There was no ice house. There was no investment. There was no VC, no angels. And essentially, my thinking was there's no reason why you can't build a global technology-based company uh, out of Auckland. You just need to think globally from the beginning because Auckland's obviously too small. So that became the mission to say, okay, which markets should we go to and how do we get out there because we can't just service you know, domestically. So from day one, almost as soon as we had enough cash and momentum, we were like, okay, let's get on planes. We've got to get out of here. And then you came to sell that to a listed, big listed US company. What was that like to sell something that, I mean, it would have become part of your identity and you're working with your brother on it. Like it would have both been- Both brothers actually. Both brothers, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It would have been like a really big call, right? Yes and no, because just before then, it was the recession. So that hit like a ton of bricks. Uh 2008, 2009. And in that period, it was really difficult. I had We had to let go a lot of people, basically half the companies. We went from something just under 200 to around 90 people. Um, and as you say, we had a development center in India, which had about 100 people, which we had to kind of halve. And so I learned a lot of your um, battle scars during that six to 12 months trying to stay alive. And in that process, I was grappling with, well, this is really hard. <laughs> Building a company is really hard. And it kind of dawned on me that if I was going to build a company, I'd want to build something in the future that was solving some sort of real social or environmental problem. I can't describe exactly how that happened, but it became basically the question was, if I'm going to do this all over again, and it might just fall over, which was what this was at the point of, you know, December 2008, I want it to be something that's more meaningful than just innovation and helping Coke sell more Coke or something like that. So when we got through the recession, kept the company alive, it started to thrive because I had to focus like everyone is focusing right now on margin, profitability, cash flow. And eventually we came across this company that loved what we were doing and they wanted to buy some of it and then eventually all of it. And I was almost like, phew, because I really want to get on and do some different things. So after 10 years, I was like, I want to focus on new problems and learn about other problems in the world. And that's became, I guess, the beginning of the next the next chapter of my life, you know, which is a hallmarked by social and environmental issues. 
Yeah, and that's an interesting journey, right? Because being 30, 30 odd, you know, having sold like a, a company for a you know good exit and then, um, you, you, you know, uh, the world's at your feet. Like a lot of people might go down a different path than into societal and environmental kind of activity. Like what kind of led you to work with Richard Branson? And yeah, I mean, how important is it to have your head on your shoulders at that kind of age? Well, I think that the benefit of going through the, all those cycles in that first 10 years, um, it's like you look back and you go, I've done all these things, you know, um, tried all these things and have made something work. Well, what's what's the next most difficult challenge? What are the things I really want to put my, my mind to? And to me, I couldn't get past, like, what are things I can contribute to that are solving issues in society? Um, so I made the call at the end of the Hyperfactory to learn about all as much as I could about problems, um, economic problems, social problems, environmental problems, because I realized I knew absolutely nothing because I'd focused 10 years on technology and innovation. And I decided I would basically donate one or two years of my life to learning. And I would do that by giving that time to courses, universities, institutions that were working on these issues so that I could almost be like an apprentice. And I had told Richard that story. I said, next year, this was you know November 2011. I was like, next year, it's all free. And I'm going to work for people for free because I want to learn about the issues. And in the course of like an hour and a half, we decided to co-found a group, which was basically bringing together business leaders to talk about and solve those issues. And that became the beginning of this next journey. And yeah, how do you keep your head on in that period? Well, it's really interesting. I think, again, you're young, you're, you've got infinite energy, infinite optimism, um, and you just keep pushing and trying to do the best you can. So it was a very interesting uh, segue from, you know, one thing to the next. What kind of stuff did you get up and rolling with the B team? Well, the first thing was like mapping what are some of the in, like issues in business uh, and how might we want to sh change them over the next 10 to 20 years. This is also in the wake of like Occupy Wall Street where the world was really angry with business. Um, so we looked at and talked to like some of the smartest people who'd thought about what the role of a corporation is over the last 20 to 30 years. We talked to, talked to lots of people who were trying to reshape the role of a corporation right at that moment, which was including the people who were founding the B Corp movement. And looking at how do you shift the, the, the focus on business back to a stakeholder perspective, you know, people, planet, and profit versus what had happened in the 80s and 90s, profit became this overriding factor. And you kind of peel back and figure out what's missing. Well, companies had decided that the environment was not important because it was what economists had called an externality. Companies had decided that quarterly earnings were the most important because listed uh, stock trading became the bigger driver. So there are these things where you map them. You're like, okay, you need to have much more long-termism. You need to build an environmentalism and understanding of environmental sustainability. You need to have different levels of governance. You need to have different levels of transparency. All the stuff that the 80s and 90s had basically clouded over. And so that was part one. And then the part two was who are the stalwarts? Who are the leaders, the beacons in the world that already are embracing and, and leading the way in this in business? And we decide, well, we get them together and we decide how this team behaves and how this team works. So I basically then mapped with some advisors who are the most incredible CEOs in the world or thought leaders or C uh, entrepreneurs that are kind of blazing a trail. And you just get them in a room like anything else, like, you know, that, that expression, like how many people can share a pizza? And you kind of get them around and say, what should this group work on with its voice and its power? And from there, the group evolves. And you picked some things to work on that, you know, have been the kind of defining 
questions of, uh, you know, the next 10 years for sure. T- tell us a little bit about the advocacy around the Paris Agreement. Yes, I remember very distinctly, we were in a meeting in Davos in 2014, where lots of business people obviously meet. And there was a guy called Johan Rockström who had developed this thing called the Planetary Boundaries, which I think is very uh, much more well uh, known now. He created this visual way of understanding how is the planet or how are we pushing the planet past these various boundaries? And essentially he was saying that if we all advocate for this two and a half degree goal, we're gonna miss it and it's gonna be, we're gonna overshoot by far. And there was this interesting discussion within like an hour of the group going, well, what should we do about that? And Johan's advocacy was basically, you need to shoot for a different goal. It needs to be lower because we're still gonna miss it, but at least the goal would be have much better margin of error. And so that year, the group decided that was all they were going to do, call presidents, prime ministers, CEOs, and say, look, we need to tell everyone in the world the goal needs to change, and the written document at the end in Paris needs to reflect this new goal. And I think that's the kind of thing you can do where you've got 20, 30 people who essentially know all the levers in in the world, and you can ask them to push on the same button at the same time, which I think is one of the best ways to create systems change. And then eventually, you've got got the back of um, Christiana Figueres, who's designing the Paris Agreement, and you do whatever you can to help her get there. Um, several years later, Christiana joined the B team. Yeah, wow. And a lot of that work, you know, your, your one year of kind of donating ended up being a lot more, didn't it, in that space. That has also influenced the ERA Foundation that you've set up yourself, which is kind of the, 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 the parent uh, for the ERA financial institution right tell us tell us about that and then we'll be able to get into um, a bit into the 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 era proposition yes yeah, so when we sold the company my wife and i we bought a home we did some other things and we said well let's start a small foundation because we don't start now uh even though we don't have like giant huge amounts of capital uh when will we start so we said well we'll put some money in and we'll we'll grow it and then we'll use it to incubate projects so it wasn't going to be this foundation that was going to give heaps of money away it was like let's start by building things and that was going to be the mission how the foundation would create wealth so we called it era because i wanted it to work on things that were either critical of the current time or things that were timeless so era is just a latin word uh the root for, for era so it's basically what is of our generation or is what what is timeless And um, the first thing we decided to create was our response to climate change issues, being an entrepreneur and investor. I was like, one of the best ways to respond to climate change is to find a way to back the most innovative technology solutions, creating new methods um, versus the old methods that have created climate change. So the first project that came out of the foundation was actually ERAVC, which is a venture capital firm, uh, almost 100% focused on climate change technologies. And, you know, then we did that. It's working really well. It produced some returns for the foundation. And then when I returned home to New Zealand, I started getting obsessed with, you know, some of these other issues. And that's why the foundation has incubated this new project in financial services. How do you go about starting something like the VC, you know, because that's a really cool thing uh, to be able to put capital behind ideas that can make things better kind of a force multiplier for there's only so much time in the day that you could be working on things right exactly how do you go about getting something like that spun up and going well again 2015 2016 it's not a lot of early stage climate tech vcs uh 
honestly, my partner and I started just by making angel investments in different things, testing, learning. It was a bit broader. It was more about sustainability, not so much just climate. And you start looking, you know, where's the opportunity? What kind of problems are people solving? And you just start. And to build a fund, you need to raise money from other investors and convince them that A, you'll be able to pick the winners and B, you'll be able to source enough of them to build the fund. And it's honestly a very, very hard thing to do, building a fund, because there's no urgency. You know, when you're raising money for a company, there's urgency and people are excited and there's FOMO. But you could spend two years raising a fund. So you have to have this long burn and just keep building relationships till people believe in uh, what you're doing. Um, our other mission was we wanted to do it fully virtual from day one and fully global. So I tried to do things that are really difficult. <laughs> So again, back in 2016, who would have thought virtual global fund? So I basically built the first iterations of the fund off Skype. We did all our deals virtually. In fact, we've done almost all our deals virtually all around the world. Our very first deal has become a really successful uh, climate tech company that makes chemicals without using petroleum. Um, it's raised, I don't know how much since, but 500, 600 million uh, unicorn multiple times over. Obviously, that helps if you do a deal like that to begin with. People think, oh, these guys might have a clue. Um, and then you just build off the back of that. And at that time, because climate tech still is something that people are starting to get their heads around, but it very much fits into that framework that you you, you mentioned earlier of what are going to be the big changes over the next 10 years. And if the world's going to actually get into decarbonisation, then there's going to be some huge waves of change Uh in these spaces, right? But that would have been a, a harder conversation to be having, you know, seven years ago. Yes, but I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, yeah. <laughs> right? Like I lean into uh, whatever, to whatever, you know, adversity, the difficult, the seemingly impossible, and then the wave comes and then people are like, oh, that's so obvious. Um, but also you, you go by your conviction, which the conviction is, do you believe in this? Are these the problems? Yes. Do you understand the facts as they are? If the world continues this way, what's needed? If people can create new solutions, what will happen to them? So you shortcut that whole story. Have we got climate change? Yes. How many decades is it going to take to solve? How much CO2 do we need to take out? What could companies do? If they succeed, could they become worth $5, $10 billion? Yes, 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 yes. Then you convince yourself, well, I should be building an investment fund to do this because the biggest companies in the next 10 years are not going to be Facebooks and TikToks. They're going to be the, the climate solutions uh, of every different problem that exists in the world at the moment. Yeah, and if you look at the list of biggest companies over the last 120 years, always in the top 10, there's been a concentration of oil companies and chemical companies. And they, they're all, if you trace them back, even you know your Coca-Colas, you trace them back, they're petrochemical companies. Yeah. <laughs> industrial companies, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they all need to be replaced with carbon negative or carbon neutral versions. Either they'll replace themselves or they will just be replaced. So that first company we backed, they didn't say we're a carbon negative um, uh, hydrogen peroxide company. They said, we're going to be a carbon negative Dow chemical. And that's the vision that you want to back. Like someone that says, we're actually going to replace this entire company. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> and we'll be back in a moment to talk what it takes to start a non-bank bank, plans for the foundation and spirituality.
Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Hokimai Ano, we're back with Derek Handley, founder at Era. So, we mentioned right up in the intro about starting kind of a non-bank bank. How hard is that? And and kind of what is that? And what are you up to with Era? Okay, there's a lot of questions. Yeah. In one. <laughs> three, three at one. Um, Let's go. First of all, it is very hard. I have found uh, very difficult to build a financial services platform in New Zealand um, that is essentially looks like what around the world they call neobanks, which is a, you know, a mobile first digital uh, banking experience for any, any aspect of what, what you do with your money. There's lots of different ways people have built those companies. There's about 400 of them around the world, and we have none in New Zealand, and now you know, one, which is error. Um, the, 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 how you describe it, I guess, is a finan- digital financial services platform, but we're 100% focused on aspiring first home buyers and first home savers. Uh, which I came to because I landed on that as being a critical generational issue for New Zealand. Like I feel like we are at a uh, critical point in time where we either do different things to help everyday Kiwis be able to get in their homes or we do the same thing and we end up with basically two countries, which is a whole bunch of people that have no expectation ever of owning their own home. And for me, the second is not an option to watch and stand by and observe uh, looking at it just happen. And so over the last couple of years, I eventually said, well, if, if, if drastic things aren't attempted, then nothing will happen. And that's what convinced me uh, to start. So what are we? We're essentially looking to help people save much faster to get their deposits much faster. And I'll be building a whole lot of uh, savings products under the hood of ERA to get that done. And then we're looking at the real issue of people being unable to crack that 20% deposit and to me, again, that was a, it's an innovation problem, and I'll be l- launching an array of different options to help people fill that gap, particularly those that don't have the bank of mum and dad. And so that's really the mission uh, of ERA. And it's not because I think houses and asset are like, you know, the be all and end all. It's because I think a house and a home stand for a lot of different things that interconnect, including they're a really great forced savings mechanism, and New Zealand is a very young country when it comes to saving for retirement. They give people stability in their community with their families because New Zealand has extremely poor tenancy and rental policies and very poor long-term rental owners, whereas in other countries you have people that just want to own rentals forever and keep their tenants. And, of course, New Zealand's house prices, no matter what you uh, people think at the moment, unless, again, a whole combination of things changes really quickly, the next 10 to 20 years, the house prices will do what they've always done the last 10 to 20 years. And therefore, it's an important thing that people get involved in sooner rather than later uh, because it helps them build 
uh, a retirement asset and helps them not get priced out. So the mission of ERA is to, to crack that nut um, and avoid us splitting into two countries where our kids grow up thinking there's just no way in hell uh, I'm going to be able to buy a house unless my parents somehow get me into it. Yeah, that's so interesting as it's so built into the settings of our political economy that people will have a house. So the pension, for example, which exactly. is the biggest spend we have in our country is the pension, and it's only going to grow as the population ages, but it's still predicated on the fact that you own your own house and the pension is only enough to cover the things on top of being freehold. And now we have generations coming in who are not going to be freehold. So what does that end up meaning? Well, okay. I mean, I didn't... I just got to the point where I was like, that's not an option. We have to try things different. If you went further and went and looked 30, 40 years down the track, that picture, if you actually went and painted it, it's a pretty frightening picture. Um, it would mean that if this current generation, the next 10 to 15 years, wasn't saving incredibly well from an incredibly early age, it would be really, really difficult for them to figure out how and when they stop working and how, how and when they're going to retire. I don't think anyone's done the math or painted the picture of what that looks like. Um, but it didn't. I didn't need to be convinced to see what that picture was looked like yeah. before. I was like, <laughs> I've got to figure out something here. Um, the only thing that I, I had, I saw further enough to think in the next five or ten years, it's mathematically impossible for someone just earning median or even significantly more than median to buy a house. Uh, that was enough to convince me, you know, to really figure out different options. Yeah, and you mentioned the bank of mum and dad, which it has become in that two kind of New Zealand's picture that you you paint there. It's an intergenerational wealth transfer thing. And it used to be that you'd think about intergenerational wealth as being, you know, people who were very well off and maybe they were passing on, you know, a batch to each of the kids or something. But now it means, can you own a house in your life? And if your parents didn't have a house very unlikely you will. So how would something like ERA step in to, or, or how, how have these things been addressed um, in, or could be addressed so that it can become that thing that can help to be the, the bridge between people who are earning well, have good prospects, but just don't have that, that luck of being born in a family where a, a parent's able to help them or a family member is able to help them get into a deposit? Well, I think it's around trying to create new types of financial services that help fill that gap in the same way you're, you might borrow money from your, your mom and dad or they would have had a piece of the house or something like that. That's where the innovation needs to lie. The, the problem is with the binary system of you either have 20% deposit or you don't. And that is far too black and white for where we are. So there's a layer in the middle that is where ERA will focus on, which is we'll somehow develop different ways to fill that gap. And we will have to make money, obviously, on providing that service. But at least it will mean that you could own a significant portion of a house that you're starting with versus you're having to wait a whole number of years to get to that 20% threshold. So it'll just get you there faster. Our whole language is around accelerating you into the home ownership. So you're, you're starting earlier. And part of that is about questioning the assumption that you have to do the 20% all on your own. And at the moment, the assumption is either you do it all on your own or your parents help you, uh, or if you earn low enough, the government have some programs, but they're very limited capacity to help you. But there's this huge number of people in the middle which are earning really good income but cannot get the 20%. 
and that's where we'll be focused on uh, delivering you know different options for people. There's things like you know co-ownership of a house and then it passing from co-ownership to single ownership of the homeowner or whatever right that, that's kind of interesting. But another thing that keeps people locked out is the lack of affordable entry-level housing. And so an example being in Toronto, I, I was um, lucky enough to work for a company that had operations in Toronto and got to know uh, the, the city and the setup well. All of the young people who were in their 20s and early 30s and were like kind of going forward, they'd buy a condo and the condo would cost the equivalent of 300k New Zealand and they'd be buying it not for capital gains but to live close to the city centre uh, and then they'd pay down um, you know, mortgage instead of rent with very, very similar cost structures, super low deposits to get in and then when they came to go to the next stage of life and get married and head to the suburbs, they'd have a nice big deposit that's this condo that they've been paying down for you know five or six years. New Zealand is missing both the supply of 300k, you know, one to two bedroom or studio apartments, but also banks who will support people into those types of property with low deposits or reasonable deposits and will actually kind of lend to them mm. at all. Like, what do you see that could be the changes here? I think the makeup of the housing stock itself has a lot of opportunity to change, right? And you have people like Sam Stubbs building to rent, which is, solves another different category of problem. Um, you have different uh, builders trying to build more affordable houses. Um, the apartment issue in New Zealand has really suffered from our first wave of apartments in Auckland were a bad experience, right? Uh, they were built badly. A lot of them lost value. A ton of them are on leasehold land. So you, your value disappeared entirely, like all the ones in Wynyard Quarter, all the ones uh, in Beach Road. So the whole scar tissue of apartments is almost like our parents' generation scar tissue of the 87 crash, which they can't stop talking about. So the apartments have this bad rep in New Zealand and they don't hold their value very well in lots of places. And so people are like frightened to go there and maybe over the next 20 years that will change but also the psychology of a new zealander thinking about their first home it still is around a home a house a unit a townhouse and so maybe that will evolve you have some interesting developers like ockham who are creating more interesting apartment or complexes they're not like sky rises so i think all of that will change but the volume that needs to change and the pace it needs to change is just so much that you need all solutions that you know all together um if you think about I don't know what we're at the moment on track to do 100,000 new net migrants. Like, that's a lot of bedrooms. So all the solutions in the system need to be applied and errors focus particularly on a specific aspect. And there's so many others focused on all the others. Uh, one thing that you've done across the years to kind of build the platform for taking these kind of positions it's really being a kind of advocate and voice in the conversation, right? So tell us about that um, that decision to, especially in a country like New Zealand that can be pretty unforgiving to people who pop their heads up, to you, you know to to write books, to become a um, a speaker and a leader on kind of entrepreneurship and innovation and um, giving things a go. Okay, that's this is really hard in New Zealand. You know, I, um, it's been very difficult. I, I found the first chapter, I was like, I want to 
showcase an example, see what happens when a kid gives it a go. And I was very happy to uh, share that whole journey, right? Speak a lot about it, talk about it, uh, be in the media and say, look, let's see, see what can be done, whether it was going to fail or not. Um, I think New Zealand is very happy to give young people the benefit of the doubt on the, on the way up. Then uh, media and the culture turns really quickly. And I found that happened to me and I've seen it happen to a lot of friends and they start finding reasons to take you down. And so that really changed my view on how visible you want to be. And um, various things happened, you know, in recent years that really uh, made me rethink how visible and what things you want to be known to do and what things you want to speak out about, because there is still a culture in New Zealand that is pretty vicious and unkind to people that are trying to cut their own path, which I think is one of the things that holds us back the most. And I've seen both sides of it because I got the benefit all the way, all the way, all the way up. And it was very kind to me. And then at some point it decided something about whatever I was doing was worth attacking or having a go at. And it kind of dragged me all the way back down. So now I'm kind of in my third wave and very selective and very careful about what I do. But what I think it comes back to and comes down to in New Zealand is an insecurity. There's an insecurity in New Zealand. There's an insecurity in some of the people. And there's an insecurity about are we good enough? Why are some people uh, think they can be better? Why do people who've gone, Kiwis who've gone overseas and come home think they know different? And I'm, I don't judge anyone who has or hasn't been, but I think it's a damaging culture and it's hurtful and it's hurt lots, lots of different people, individuals and groups as well. And I think we'd all be better off if we were a lot less judgmental and helped each other on the way up and helped each other as they were falling and stumbling down. And the second part, New Zealand needs to really get a lot better at, I think. And that kind of role of being, um, you know, a voice for some of these things was really interesting seeing in COVID times, your wiser conversations, as I think part of the media narrative or part of, you know, a story is people get put into a box and maybe it's an entrepreneur box and then you're just about, you know, making more widgets or getting more money. And then you came out with a series about spirituality and uh you know religion and connection and the like tell me about that and you're going all over the place yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so i think you know for many years i i have invested in my time and thinking what what is the framework for how i think about life right what's important what is this about because it all ends so if it all ends and you end up moving on you have to have some kind of a sense of, well, what is this for? And also in particularly dark times or when things are really difficult, you need to have a much bigger sense of purpose or connection to take you away from the smaller things that might be dragging you down. And so I've always had a deep interest in the questions, the bigger questions of, of, of what we're here to do. And I think each person, you know, invests their own time to figure out their own, their own version of that, the answers to those questions in COVID. I found myself um, struggling to contribute or find a way to be helpful. I was like, this is really chaotic, but I don't, I can't really do anything. I'm not the prime minister. I have nothing to do with, you know, medicine. And what I felt I needed was to have or hear conversations that were comforting around the fact that it was really difficult to understand what was going on in our homes, in our hearts, in our minds, in the world. 
And I'd always wanted to speak to really interesting people who had different views on that. And so one night I just said, I'm going to start this conversation series and I'm going to email, I'm going to write a list of 10 people that I want to talk to and I'm just going to email them. And if one person says, yes, I'm going to start. And that's how it, how it started. And I wrote to this guy called Pico Ayer, who's a beautiful writer who writes lots of different books on travel and life. And he wrote one book around silence. And I thought that's a really good starting point. Uh, and so we, we started the conversation series and then we did, you know, about 20 with different psychologists and spiritual thinkers and Buddhist monks and um, various people who had different views on how we could interpret what was happening to us. Mm. And it's so cool as there's almost like a kind of cliche of kind of like a tech or entrepreneur person, like getting into spirituality in a very surface way, you know, like, I don't know, doing some mushrooms or going to Burning Man or whatever and, and the like. But kind of your journey through here has involved studying religion at Harvard for years, which is really interesting. And it was really cool to see that kind of depth through there. And quite interesting for when people do take positions on things like societal inequity and stuff to come from a base like that. Yes, I've, you know, I think I always want to experience what I choose to get involved in in a deeper way and really learn about it uh, and not be surface or peripheral. Um, and part of the fascination I've had with religion or spirituality is the all-encompassing nature of it. Like what and how do all the various uh, philosophies think and what's common and what's not common and uh, what do I like about them? And, and uh, I also really... Um, like I think I mentioned earlier, I think of myself as a student of everything. And I really loved actually the act of going back to school um, and studying. And, you know, again, it was all through COVID, unfortunately, but that was still a really uh, profound change. Oh, now I have to study and do exams and write essays and things like that. Um, but I love it. So I don't think I'll ever not be a student. And I've found that to be really rich. It's kind of like going to the gym. It's like going to the gym for the heart and the mind and the soul. So I'll always be studying something. And there's a lot of things that we could have also got to. Uh, things like starting um, venture studios and a bunch of the companies you've been involved in and the like. There's a couple of final thoughts. Like what advice would you have for people who, who do want to make things happen as you've made a lot of things happen. Like we didn't get to directorship, we didn't get to uh, the AUT work, the, the Wharton work, you know, there's all kinds of things there. So yeah, like um, what, what advice would you have for, for, for starting things and, and actually getting things going in the world? That's a, a wonderful question. I think it depends on where you're starting from. Um, if you have a lot already on your plate and it feels like there's never enough room to think about doing anything new, the first thing to free space to start something is to stop things. You have to choose the things you don't want to do anymore. And having a big long to-do list, one of the most important things on a to-do list is to take things off it. So you need to create some space to start stuff. Um, the book I wrote, which is about 10 years ago, is called Heart to Start. And why I chose that title was because I think it has a lot to do with what is in your heart and what moves you. So if you, if you look inside and figure out 
these things are calling me or they're driving me or they're concerning me. And you give yourself some space and some quiet to identify and understand them. Then you can cut a path to figure out what am I going to do about them? And starting from the heart, I think is really important as opposed to starting from what do you see other people doing? What do you think is the right thing to do right now? Because what you see in the media, like those things are really distracting. And then you find out later, which happens to me many times, oh, I should never have started that thing because it's not from me. It's from something else. So I think those are two really important things. The last piece is you just have to fucking start. You can't just talk about things and you, you need to put things out into the world. And this is the most risky piece that a lot of people uh, find discomforting. You need to start talking about it, bringing it to life, explaining it to other people, maybe a small group to begin with, because once you start verbalizing something, it moves from becoming, I'm thinking of doing this, or I'm interested in this problem, to at some point you say, I am building something. And then I am personally, I embed that into some daily ritual. It's kind of like quirky, like you might be my computer password or something. And so for the, the bank alternative, 18 months ago, whenever one day I decided to change my computer password, which is essentially something that I have to type a thousand times a day, which is basically, I am doing this. That's the message I give myself a thousand times. So the combination of things is critical. You can't do one without the other. You need to put all those pieces together and just get moving. And as a final thought, what will success be for you? And what will success be for ERA? For ERA, the foundation, I think it would be having built things that meaningfully made a difference in the current generation and things that have ended up becoming timeless, things that would far outlast my family and you know hundreds of years from now. That's really what I want to work to in the long run. Uh, for ERA, the financial services company, it's to meaningfully make a difference to get thousands and tens of thousands of New Zealanders into their homes faster than they otherwise could or actually get them into homes than they otherwise uh, couldn't have and eventually becoming a generational financial institution. And that sounds, you know, a lot, but that's the goal. It's going to be really hard, but we're going to give it a crack. And for AeroVC, it's really to back as many companies as possible that have a chance of taking out as much carbon a year as New Zealand produces. You know, there's going to be hundreds of companies that will probably back for up to about 35 already. Um, if we can play our role in the next 10 years to back as many ideas as possible, then at least I feel like I've done a bit to help that cause. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you for coming and sharing the story so far today and can't wait to see where you take all of those things. That's Derek Handley, founder at ERA Kepler. Thank you. So thank you to Derek, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Te Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. E From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. 
cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.